listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, November the 22nd, in the year of our Lord 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and on Mondays we take a look at the readings for the following Sunday, at least one of them. And guess what? It's a new church year. That's right. It begins the first Sunday in Advent on November the 28th in the year of our Lord 2021. Now that's going to be an exciting time because we have what's called a three-year series of readings. Year A, we kind of concentrate on the Gospel of Matthew. Year B, on the Gospel of Mark. Year C, which begins this Sunday, on the Gospel of Luke. And each Sunday in a three-year series, there is a psalm, there is an Old Testament reading, there is an epistle, and there is a gospel. Now, the Old Testament reading for the first Sunday is Jeremiah 33. The epistle is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And the gospel is Luke 19. Now, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and so it really is the first Sunday in Advent. That is to say, what does Advent mean? It's from the verb to come. It's a coming of our Lord. And there's three specific comings that we often talk about. And first of all, Christmas, his coming in the Bethlehem stable. He became incarnate, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. A second coming is his coming into you when the Holy Spirit gives you faith to trust in the promises of the gospel. And the third coming, which we talked about the last Sundays of the church year, is his coming on the day of judgment. That's right. It's Jesus who will be the judge. And therefore, if you are a Christian, heaven will be your home. Now, what's interesting, out of the Holy Gospel for this first Sunday in Advent, we have another coming of Jesus in Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. And we normally refer to this on Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and of course, people were throwing their various palm branches on the ground to welcome the Savior. Now, let's take a look, therefore, at Luke chapter 19, 28 to 40. He is going up to Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time he's been to Jerusalem. He was there when he was circumcised. He was there when Simeon and Anna talked to him. He was there when, guess what? He was 12 years old asking questions. And he is often there at the Passover. And it appears that twice 
he ended up overthrowing the temple treasury because they had made a temple not a house of prayer, but a house of criminals. That's what he says. Anyway, he's on the mount that is called Olivet, and he says to two of the disciples, go into the village. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So the two disciples went away and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. The same thing that Jesus told them to say. And they didn't stop them. They allowed them to take the colt away to the Lord. Now, why did that happen? One could say that maybe they had a vision from an angel saying that on that day, two men would come to take their colt away and it would be for Jesus. Or, obviously, Jesus had been in Jerusalem a number of times. He had spoken the word of God, and so it's quite possible that they were quite aware of him. And therefore, when it says, the Lord has need of it, oh, they had no problem allowing the two disciples to take the colt away. So verse 35 of Luke 19, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now we also know that there was a spreading of palm branches on the road. This is not the only gospel that talks about this Palm Sunday event. And we call it Palm Sunday because they had thrown down palms. It was the first day of Jesus last week prior to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So this was on a Sunday. And as he was drawing near, they had gone down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, this is important for a number of reasons. We know that a week later, on Good Friday, people were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And some give the impression that that was the same group of disciples who had thrown down palm trees for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But that is not correct because these were people that he had brought 
from Bethany. He had relatives there, and so a large crowd had followed him to Jerusalem. And they did not change their mind to call out, crucify him, crucify him, just a few days later. What they were saying is, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we're not saying that they understood Jesus as to his true character, being both God and man. Remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, many of them chased after him because they thought they had a bread king. They thought they had a secular king, a king who, yes, was coming in the name of the Lord, but not God himself. It took until after the resurrection before many people began to understand that Jesus was God. In fact, the first disciples to refer to him as God was none other than Doubting Thomas when he saw him the Sunday after Easter, my Lord and my God. Even when he did spectacular things that the people were very impressed with, even the disciples still did not get it. Remember, they were in a boat. It was sinking. Jesus stood up, and he calmed wind and wave. And then they said, who is this man that even the wind and wave obey him? They still hadn't realized that he was God incarnate, the Savior of the entire world. So, Yes, there was an understanding that he was of great importance. But as Luke indicates, they were throwing their colts, etc., praising God. And verse 37, for all the mighty works that they had seen. You see, Jesus made a point elsewhere that they saw the feeding of the 5,000, but they missed the sign to which it was pointing. It was pointing to the fact that this was the new Moses. This was God himself as promised throughout the Old Testament to come becoming a human being for the purpose of dying on the cross. All this is in the Old Testament Just read Psalm 22. It tells how he's going to die, pierced in hands and feet. And the only execution I'm aware of where one is pierced in hands and feet is the crucifixion. And so the disciples still did not get it. And they didn't believe when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, there I will die. But three days later, I will rise from the dead. No, even the wonderful women who would take care of Jesus 
in their homes while he was doing ministry, they didn't get it because on Easter morning, they had gone to the tomb to give the burial rites to a dead man. And of course, they did not believe that he would rise from the dead, even though he promised that. Well, you can imagine that the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, were not very comfortable with Jesus being referred to as he was. And verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, that is, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus, of course, refuses to rebuke, even though the people at that time only had a semblance of who Jesus truly was. But they did recognize a greatness and a glory, and that he prays, they praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, what's very helpful is the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 33. It begins with verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What was that promise? Well, throughout the Old Testament books, God has promises concerning the Messiah, speaking those promises to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Solomon, to many of the prophets, namely that there would be one coming who though he would be injured by Satan, he would crush the head of Satan. And that was a promise that God now fulfills. It was a promise to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, God says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, this is absolutely critical verse because nobody goes to heaven unless God recognizes them to be righteous. So somehow, the Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, that he will be righteous and that that righteousness will be in the land, which means it will be credited to the people. How will that occur? Well, verse 16 says, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Remember, Judah is 
the lower two tribes in Jerusalem taken into Babylonian captivity because of their idolatry and their wickedness and their sinfulness. They would cheat when the poor would bring grain to be weighed and their scales were not appropriate and they did not give the poor the amount of money that they should have received among many other things. And so God permitted the Babylonians to take them into captivity. But then after a time, the Babylonians were defeated and those who defeated them allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple as best as they could and to bring together the people of God. Now, the temple that they rebuilt was not near as beautiful as was Solomon's temple, but at any rate, they did rebuild to some degree. Herod did a better job when he was king, and at any rate, they would worship God in proper worship services. So what we have here is Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. Now, the word Jerusalem can refer to the city, but it also can refer to the new kingdom, the kingdom on Mount Zion called the Holy Christian Church. We're, as Christians, members of that Holy Christian Church, and therefore we reside in the spiritual Jerusalem. Jesus is the head. We are part of the body. But this is the name by which it will be called. And we're talking about Jerusalem that is saved. This is so important. What is the name? The Lord is our righteousness. You understand what that means? God is the righteousness that we need. He is holy. He is blameless. He is sinless. As we've said before, there are only three human beings that were sinless. Jesus, of course, remains sinless all the time. But Adam and Eve had been sinless in the Garden of Eden until they fell into sin. And we inherited that sin. We lost that righteousness that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. But God came to the serpent and said, yes, there's one coming from the seed of Eve who will crush your head. When you crush the head of a snake, you put it to death. But as that happens, you will wound him, referring, of course, to the crucifixion. So what we have here in Jeremiah, the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus righteously obeyed his father. He served his father. He died on the cross. And therefore, those 
who are saved are not those who do really good works. They are instead those who have faith in the promises of Jesus Christ. And that faith, one of the results of it is not only trusting the gospel promises, but also the ability to do spirit-filled good works, which God recognizes and applauds. You go to, well, Matthew 25, what do you have? The sheep and the goats. And there Jesus is applauding the sheep for their good works because they are motivated by love of Jesus Christ. No good work can be considered a good work in the eyes of God unless the motivation is that of love toward Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be always understanding it in that way, but you do many, many fruit of the Holy Spirit spontaneously because of your faith, and you just kind of do it. Uh, a lot of times, children love to help out parents, and they'll do that because of their love for the children, uh, for the parents, the children will do that. And it isn't because they have an ulterior motive. They may be grown, they may be married, but they still like to talk to the parents, visit with them, help them out if they have some problems. That's how Christianity works. Yes, Christians do good works, but they don't do them in order to be saved. They do them because they are already totally saved. In other words, a child becomes a child of parents either because he or she is begotten or adopted. In the Holy Christian Church, there's only one begotten Son, and that's Jesus Christ. God, of the substance of God, one substance, co-equal with God the Father. But we are adopted children. That's found a number of times in the New Testament, so that we too are referred to as sons of God. In this coming Advent season, therefore, we take heart from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the epistle. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Yes, last week we talked about Jesus saying, stay awake, for you don't know when the last day will come. And that word awake doesn't mean that you can't ever go to sleep. 
No. You aren't to sleep, but it has a different meaning. It's talking about that Jesus keeps you awake through faith so that even when you go to bed at night and you go to sleep, you are awake from God's point of view because the Holy Spirit has implanted faith in your heart and you trust the promises of the gospel. So verse 13 is really important of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, so that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Yes, on the day of judgment, you will be declared blameless and holy, not because of your works, but because the works of Jesus Christ, who died so that you will never really die, and who lives so that you will live with him forever in heaven. On the next Law and Gospel, the hymn we're going to be, excuse me, the hymn we're going to be looking at is Savior of the Nations Come. And there we have that Advent word, come. Join myself and Mark Smith tomorrow to examine that hymn. God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your checkout to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod.